0: invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. If you want to join us with the Red Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page number 926. invite you to follow along with me as we walk through two small seed parables. I'm kind of grouping them together as two kinds of seed. Yeast is a kind of seed in some ways, and the mustard seed, there's some similarities between the two. I, I know... Yeast is not technically a seed, so don't shoot me. But Matthew chapter 13, verse 31 through 35, Jesus is uh, presenting two additional parables in quick succession right after He gave us the parable of the weeds. And let's read uh, these parables. Verse... Actually, let's start back at verse 24 to see uh, the parable of the weeds. Verse 24, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the weeds, and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, do you not sow seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat among them, let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. And he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like... Leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Hidden in plain sight, I know an elderly woman who had a coffee container full of gold coins. After she passed, her family found this coffee container in their basement. It was hidden, as it were, in plain sight. It was actually a really brilliant uh, hiding place. Uh, And actually, some of the greatest heists that never happened occurred because things were hidden in plain sight. I also know of another lady who had several bags of silver in her closet, and she covered them over with a sheet It was just sitting there. It's amazing what people will do with things like that. In verse 11 to 13, Jesus is actually telling us that the secrets of the kingdom of heaven are kind of like, they're kind of hidden in plain sight kind of like in coffee cans, and Jesus Jesus was hiding, as it were, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven and everyday things, and he was as if it were opening up a lid and, and showing his listeners what God had planned from the foundation of the, earl, of the world and showing how the kingdom of heaven is a lot like household things or, or common day things like seeds, like soils, like yeast, like harvest, like fish. And yet, to those who have ears to hear, Jesus is the one taking off, as it were, the lid of the coffee can. He's revealing the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew tells us in verse 35 that Jesus' parables held what had been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, We've encountered a couple of these parables, and two of the parables, uh, Jesus only gives a very brief description, kind of a brief explanation, two and out of seven in this chapter, and the other parables don't really have a detailed explanation. And so I have to ask, what does that mean for us? If we don't have Jesus to here to explain these parables to us, how do we handle them? How do we understand? How do we peel out the treasures that have been left for us? How do we see them, as it were? It sometimes maybe feels a little bit hidden still. And so what I believe this means is that we ought to be careful. We ought to take these parables more generally, rather more simply, rather than complexly. Uh, We can gather some clues from the context of how Jesus pairs these two parables the mustard seed, and also the yeast with the the weeds. There might be some things that kind of carry over in how Matthew lays them out. But I think we ought to take more care to examine ourselves as we listen to these parables as they're taught. We might have a sense of which, oh, I know how these things are interpreted. I can get the parables, but that might be the worst thing that happens to us. Jesus actually wants us to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are truly in the kingdom of heaven, to see whether we belong to the kingdom or not. And so, I want to reflect on these texts and in these parables and help us to see how God has been working throughout all time. He has been working, revealing Himself gradually through time, Christ being the greatest expression And so, I want us to look back at verse 38. I had promised last Sunday that I would come back to a section that I had passed over in the parable of the weeds, and that was the question about the world and the field. And if you look back at verse 30, uh, look at 38, Jesus explains that in the parable of the weeds, verse 38, the field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. I'm going to read that again. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And if you recall the parable of the weeds and the seeds of the the wheat that were being sown, God is actively sowing seeds with His Word in the world. And what this, I believe, tells us is that God's rule in the world is without borders. It is without borders. Uh, these two parables, the, seed, the mustard seed and also the yeast, a piggyback off the, the parable of the weeds, where Jesus had said that the field represents the world. The world is a very broad term. It, it means uh, the created universe, everything that we see, experience, and feel, but it also refers to human interaction, human beings in general. As you are well aware of John 3.16, God so loved the world. The world refers to humanity. Yes, He has a generalized love for creatures that He has created, but His primary concern is for the human world. And the world is a broad term, as I said, and in this this context, I believe that Jesus is talking about how that God's sovereign rule exists over all of humanity without borders. He talks about the sons of the kingdom, referring to those who are His subjects in virtue of their response to His teaching. They respond, and they're like good seeds that sprout up like wheat, and they're, they're taking in everything, and they're growing as they ought to be. And I believe what is expressed in these two little parables of little seeds growing over time, you see that God's rule existing from the beginning of the world, even to the present, and even into the end of the age. Satan is a spiteful enemy, and he is continually working to thwart what God is doing throughout human history, and he continues to lead people astray. I believe that God's rule in this world is, yes, without borders, but I also believe it's mediated by Christ. It's mediated by Christ. Ever since man sinned in the garden, God's rule was mediated. What do I mean by mediated? I mean that mankind, because we have sinned, cannot look upon God because He is so holy. We need someone to step between us and satisfy God's holiness. Mediation was absolutely necessary, and throughout time, all sacrifice, all law, and all worship of God was mediated can't look directly upon the glory of God. And you see, the authority for all forms of worship that you read about in the Old Testament era, they're all having their authority because they, in some way, picture the ultimate mediation which would come, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And through the ages, there have been many shadows, there have been many symbols and emblems of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice, and the greatest of all symbols was the Jewish temple system. Every year, a lamb was brought, and the blood of that lamb was brought to atone for the sins of the nation. It would be carried out with blood being sprinkled upon the Ark of the Covenant, And it was this system that led John the Baptist to exclaim when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is referred to in the book of Revelation as the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Every system of worship that was approved by God had in itself a reflection of the ultimate sacrifice, the mediation of Jesus Christ. Now this was Jesus God's purpose to send his only begotten son. It was a purpose that was hidden but it was not totally unknown. The virgin birth had not yet happened, that is true. Jesus did not exist for a long period of time, but in all the shadows of the ancient past, all of them received their authority because they represented the mediation of Jesus Christ who would come. And when Christ ascended up into heaven after the resurrection, He sat at the right hand of God and He inaugurated a rule, and the fullness of which we will not yet see until He comes again and sets up His kingdom upon this earth. All of God's rule in this world, I believe, is mediated by Christ, and it is progressively revealed. You see, in the beginning, Adam and Eve walked with God in the the cool of the evening, and it it was sweet fellowship. It was absolutely innocent. There was innocence there, and man fell, He could not keep the one law that God had asked him to keep. And after the fall, man had a newly awakened conscience, and that was God's plan to serve to govern mankind. And God taught them how to do sacrifices for sin. But the conscience wasn't insufficient to regulate and govern mankind, and so gradually God had to wipe out the world with a universal flood. And so God instituted human government to execute God's justice upon the earth. And when mankind refused to spread out upon the earth, he confused their languages, forcing them to separate and to go out into all the earth. And in time, God called a a family, a specific family, to live blameless before him. His his name was Abraham, and his offspring were going to, to carry on a faithful line of witness. But all of his descendants could not do it on their own. Finally, the law of Moses was given, and God's holiness became clearer, and the way to God became more narrow. All the nations who had in their conscience an awareness of God had to convert and join the Jews in the worship of God in the temple. That's pretty narrow. And it became even more narrow because when Christ appeared, His gracious sacrifice became the way, became the truth, and became the life. Jesus' resurrection demonstrated that once for all, He alone is the way to access the Father. It is through the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the only Son of God. And Jesus is incredibly exclusive. God's rule is mediated without borders, by Christ, and it has been through time progressively displayed. Jesus is incredibly exclusive, but yet the opportunity to come to Christ is without limits. Every nation, every tongue, every social and economic class has freedom to come to Jesus. Relatively speaking, it's actually easy now to be part of God's people here in the church. And all the way along the history of the world, God has been leaving little tokens, little symbols, little emblems of the cross of Jesus Christ. This has been on purpose since the very beginning and before the creation of the world. What would be one of these emblems? For example, you all know, I suspect, the story of Noah and the flood. Well, it was an ark of redemption. And every, and, and every family and tribe was welcome to come, but that was exclusive. There was only one door that you could enter into on that ark. There was only one way. Do you see how that could potentially picture the Lord Jesus Christ, the cross, as being the only way? From the very beginning, God has been pointing, putting in little Easter eggs or nuggets of along the way pointing us to Christ. Last Sunday I mentioned in our communion service that the bread and the wine that we use to to show and display. What Christ did for us, we're not merely created just to feed people. As great as it is to have food, every time that you see bread, and every time you break bread, it ought to point your heart to a memory of Christ. Any time that you drink of grape juice or or wine, you you get the glories of the, the shed blood of Christ in your memory. Everyday objects in this world show the truths of Jesus Christ. Jesus looks at a mustard seed and he looks at yeast and he says, Look, these things can teach you about my way in the world and it can also show you my intention for you in this world. Well, the kingdom of heaven is universal, it's, it's mediated by Christ, it's without borders. And it's progressive in its nature. And that is a structure that I think is important for us to see, and it's characteristically true of the teachings of Jesus, that when Jesus' teachings come to you, and you receive them into your hearts humbly, it changes you progressively over time, just as God's workings in the world change over time. And I believe that that's a template, a pattern, for how you can see growth in people who claim to be born again. Can you see the fruit that's coming out of them, of them being progressively changed over time? And so I'm choosing to interpret these these parables from the vantage point of one's individual response to the gospel of Christ. As people identify as sons of the kingdom of heaven, as God's people, are they truly wheat or are they weeds? They may not be mighty. They may not be noble. But God has always worked throughout all of time to elevate that which is humble and that which is needy. Throughout the Old Testament era, the sons of the kingdom looked a whole lot more like Abel than Cain. They were more like David than Saul. They were more like Ruth than Jezebel. They looked a whole lot more like Hezekiah, than Ahaz. In the New Testament, they're like the leper who was cleansed. They were like the Gentile who was excluded. They look like Peter's mother-in-law. They look like the demon-possessed, the tax collector, the fisherman, the lost sheep, the prodigal son. These are the ones, the sons of the kingdom, that God has put His being in. In all these individuals, there's the characteristic work of the Holy Spirit. As people respond to the Word of God, people are changed, they're transformed, they become something great in the kingdom of God. Jesus' church is not now the fullness of the kingdom. We are an embassy, a shelter. We're like a food bank. needy people. We're a spiritual refuge. We're nourishment in this world. We're to point people towards human flourishing, towards growth, towards happiness in relationship with God who created us. And I sunk my big idea in the middle of this message this morning to show us that those who receive the gospel gladly flourish. Within the kingdom of God. And I see in these texts, I see God showing us that God's sons, when they respond to the Word of God, which seems very unlikely, it seems like, will that really make a change and difference in their life? When they truly embrace it and they respond to it, they become, in time, a sheltering kind of tree towards others in the world. And, of course, a church is made up of many members, I get that, but I'm thinking here more individually this morning. God's sons, I believe, are like a sheltering tree in the world if they respond to the truth of the gospel. Verse 31, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field, and it is the smallest of all seeds but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and make nests in its branches. Man, I don't really have to explain this parable to you. Like, it's it's pretty straightforward and pretty simple. But, you know, like the littleness and the largeness, the contrast, that's kind of the, the big point of this, right? But I do want to point out the word that Jesus is, he uses here, he uses the word took. Like they, they, they took this mustard seed. And in the next parable, in verse 33, you can see the same kind of word is used in which the woman took the yeast and hid. Took. That word means to grasp onto. I mean, how else would a woman hold on to a piece of yeast unless she grasped it and held on to it? Or how else would a person pick up a mustard seed that, and, unless he just wrapped his hands all the way around it? But I don't want you to miss the obvious. The basic requirement of entering into the kingdom of heaven is that you grasp a hold of Jesus. You can't help other people in the world unless you are grasping hold of Jesus, unless Jesus helps you first. And I believe in this text we're seeing that the path towards human flourishing that we all want does not occur unless we make Jesus central to our lives that we have to grasp a hold of Him and let Him spiritually change us so that we might grow into a large tree that then can be a blessing to other people, other birds. It's often thought that the pathway, for example, to marital happiness is that we change our spouse first. We all want happiness in our home, and we think that if we're going to have it, we've got to change the other person. That's not the path to human flourishing, folks. That means you've got a log in your eye. The path to human flourishing is actually to grasp a hold of what Jesus is telling us, to grasp a hold of the truth that we've got to do the hard work of removing the log that's in our eye. Once that log is removed, then you can help people then you can be a shelter. And that's the gospel application of responding to Jesus. We've got to humble ourselves. We've got to humble ourselves, we've got to repent, and we've got to then choose to love our neighbors as ourselves. We might be tempted to now downplay the gospel and its implications, say, you know, well, I've tried all that. Have you really tried all that? You might not just have a log in your eye, you may have a whole jam of logs in your eye. Throughout all of God's time, all of God's creation, God has had this pattern where He has blessed the humble, blessed the unlikely, the small. But there is potent power in the truth of the gospel. You can't help others unless Jesus first helps you. The smallest seed produces the greatest of results. I'm not an expert on plant life. However, Jesus says that this tree, this, this plant, blooms so large that some people have considered it a tree. And then the birds of the air come and make their nests inside of it. Now, I believe that there is probably a deliberate allusion back to the Old Testament, kind of like a token and a symbol, an emblem, because there was a king in the ancient world who had a dream about a tree, and his name was Nebuchadnezzar. And by contrast, the king of Babylon, he dreamed that there was a tree that grew so large in the middle of the earth, that it reached into the heavens, and all the, tree, all the birds of the air came and found their nests within it. Does that sound familiar this parable? Well, in that dream, he also saw that there came these angels from heaven that chopped down this tree and left just a stump. And the vision was interpreted by Daniel as this was a judgment that would come upon him for his astonishing pride. And this is what Daniel said. It's to the end. That the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. The lowliest of men. Ever since our birth, we have strived to be the greatest of men. If you're going to be a son of the kingdom... And you're going to be a true shelter to those around you. If you're going to be a part of the church as you think you ought to be, you have to come humble and lowly and grasp hold of Jesus. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, this is the basic requirement of the kingdom of heaven, is that you grasp hold of Jesus and allow Him to change you so that you can be a help and a resource to others. A lot of times we we get very frustrated with this world, and we think, man, how bad does it have to get before people wake up? How bad does it have to get for us before we wake up? Are we so filled with pride that we cannot humble ourselves and look to the cross? There's a second parable here, too, which I think is remarkable that he shifts genders. And verse 33. And I have titled this parable that God's daughters are to be a nourishing loaf. In the world. This may be incidental that there's a gender change because uh, the kind of in that century, it was like the women's work to do the, the, the kneading of the, the dough, and it may be incidental to the story, but I'm going to kind of take liberty here to say that I believe the gospel is for male and female, and that those who respond well to the truth of the gospel can also be a benefit to the world. And the normal method of bringing to fermentation, the bread making in that ancient world was to take pre-existing yeast that has fermented and then stick it into new dough and just watch it bubble and do its thing. And I believe that this is a picture of how the kingdom of heaven through the gospel in the church has a dramatic effect. And I would say this is very comparable to how Jesus talked in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about salt and light as metaphors. Salt does what it does. You you, you might not know how salt does what it does. It just does it. Light does what it does. I know we can get into the microscopic levels of atomization and all the stuff, but come on. Light does what it does. Yeast does what it does. It's remarkable. I like bread. I'm so thankful for yeast. But in the same way that you might not be able to put your finger on what salt is, salt, and how all of these things work. The truth is, there is a Savior, a a taste about a spiritual person. In other words, if you claim to be spiritual but don't have the qualities of spiritual people, then can you really claim to be spiritual? It requires that we embrace the teachings of Jesus wholeheartedly, especially the first four Beatitudes. And I want us to flip back to Matthew chapter 5 for a moment and just think about what Jesus has been telling us. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 3, the word blessed means to flourish, and Jesus is saying that you will flourish. The salt will do its thing, the light will do its thing, the yeast will do its thing, the seed will do its thing, as we are poor in spirit. for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's not talking about physical poverty. I've met some poor folk who are incredibly proud. I've met some people who have means who are incredibly humble. But poverty of spirit is specific. It's it's talking about a person who cowers like a beggar. They know they do not deserve the kingdom of heaven. They cower like a beggar. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That word mourn is one of the strongest words in the New Testament for grief and pouring out of one's emotions because they understand the ramifications of their sin. It's going to condemn me to hell. God blesses. God says, that seed will flourish. That yeast will do its thing. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Meek people understand that they are truly powerless. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I don't like to have an empty stomach. I don't know what's wrong with me. But I get this acid burn that just, I gotta have something in there to sop up all that acid. Some doctor's gonna come after me at some point. But that bitter acid feeling is a burning longing for satisfaction. It sends me to the kitchen cabinet looking for food. I need a bagel just to kind of soak it up. But these four characteristics are what some have called need. It describes a truly spiritual person because there will be the soil that will receive Jesus and not let him go. And they will grow. Because they are being changed by Jesus, and then they will be able to be a resource to others around them. In these, there is an honest assessment of our need as a sinner. Pride causes us to be double-minded, so we can't see our true need and see our great Savior. We're off looking at the world. We're not looking in and then looking up. We're looking out at the world saying, I think I found a better way. And there are many sometimes followers of Jesus that forget. A little genuine spirituality makes a profound impact upon the world. Three measures of flour in that parable, if you look back at chapter 13, there's that three measures of flour. We don't talk like that, but that's about 60 pounds of flour. That's a lot of flour. I don't like carrying a 20 bag into the house, but that's enough dough to feed a small village. And there's a lot of hunger out there. There's a lot of people in need. And a little gospel permeating the heart can make a profound difference in the world. Jesus said, come unto me. But the ancient prophets alluded to this by saying, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. It may not look like rich food, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is everything that we need. Now, Matthew bookends these parables, verse 34 and 35, saying, hey, this has been God's intention from the beginning of the world. And this kind of been a secret here in plain sight. And in telling of these parables, Jesus is using creation to explain the kingdom of heaven. And really, the kingdom of heaven is quite simply God's rule in this world. He's saying, this is the way I work. This is the way it's always been. I use little things. I'm a little thing. Jesus was a little thing. At our anniversary gathering in May, I shared how often we gravitate to the amazing, how often we gravitate to the powerful. But really, all God needs is what? Five barley loaves and two fishes. And before Christ ascended into heaven, he had a simple banquet with his disciples at the Sea of Galilee, just some bread and fishes. And really, with Jesus, something simple can be made into something great. I believe this is a lesson, and even for the future of the tabernacle, all the ingredients that we need as a congregation are found in Jesus. We just need the presence of Jesus. The gospel of truth it may hit us hard at times we may not always want to hear it and what we also need is the love of christ and jesus will multiply and he will grow his church and i believe that's a winning strategy for the future and i know that if we humble ourselves he will do great things through his people let's pray